Well, here we are in the middle of our series, the sermon called the book of Hebrews, chapter 3 and 4. Just want to read section of 3 and into chapter 4. Topic today is Jesus. Topic last week is Jesus. Topic next week is Jesus. (laughs) We've seen him as the final word. We've seen him as our brother. We've seen him as our builder. We've seen him as our rest, and today what the preacher of Hebrews is telling us is he's our counselor. Have you ever thought of that? You need counseling. (laughs) You've probably heard your wife or husband say that to you from time to time. You need counseling, but the truth is what this preacher is saying, we all need it. So let's read, beginning in chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, and then jumping down to chapter 4. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of others. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. If you know me very well, you know one of my favorite people was Brennan Manning. Years ago, a 27-year-old man came to Brennan Manning. Brennan was at that time a priest, and he came for counseling. The man was a recovering alcoholic. He had been born and raised in the Catholic Church. He had been married six times by the time he was 27. His life was a story of waste and wandering, booze and womanizing. And he was there to ask Brennan, the priest, to help him to get back to church. Brennan said, well, normally my first reaction would be to 
assure him that he was a sheep and Jesus was the shepherd and Jesus would welcome him back as a lost sheep and then I'd move quickly into outlining the process for getting his first marriage annulled and then after the first marriage was annulled every other marriage would also be invalidated it would be on the grounds of spiritual and emotional immaturity and once that happened I would have told him to go to confession, return to the Mass, have communion, and continue to be obedient. But suddenly I found that the old tapes weren't spinning in my mind anymore. I wasn't replaying the dry soul jurisprudence of a pastoral counselor. Instead, I found myself looking at him and looking beyond the technical improprieties of his situation, looking to a 27-year-old child of the Father whose life was filled with squalid choices and failed dreams. His alcoholism had torn him apart. He was broken alienated from himself and God. He was a stranger in a strange land, and so I looked at him, and as I looked at him, I found my tears were running down my face, and I couldn't help myself. I just reached out, and I grabbed him, and I hugged him as hard as I could for the longest time. And finally, I said to him, I've got a word from Jesus for you, from your brother Jesus. Welcome home. By this time, he too was sobbing. And through tears, he said, Who is this Jesus? And then I started with my own tarnished past and told him of the Jesus who met me at the deepest place in my brokenness. We prayed together. He received Christ as Savior. Light broke into his darkness. Peace filled both of our hearts. But later on, when I was alone, my canonical responsibilities as priest of the Catholic Church began to haunt me. I began to feel this sudden rush of guilt for not observing the process. And then just as suddenly, a calm came over me. And I prayed, Dear Jesus, If it's a fault for being too kind to a sinner, then it's a fault I learned from you. Now think of these first century believers. They've been run out of Rome, and we'll talk about that next week. They're suffering untold persecution. They're not spiritual neophytes. Many of them have been former priests. All of them are Jewish practitioners who've left the sacrificial system to embrace the gospel. They've come to trust Jesus as their Messiah. And yet, because of their trouble, they're facing the very real prospect of giving up, of leaving Jesus and his people. And you know what the preacher says to them? You need counseling. Today we come to the, one of the main themes of Hebrews. 
We've mentioned it already. Life is a journey. It's a long slog. It's a journey through the wilderness. And the only way any of us are going to remain faithful is through daily parakaleo, counseling. Now the word in the text we read says exhort. You must exhort one another. The NIV says encourage one another. But the word is parakaleo, which means to come alongside and hear. It means to draw alongside someone and to counsel. And that's what the preacher's saying. He's saying to these people and to us, the only way to get through life, through this wilderness, is by counseling. And the only kind of counseling we need is the counseling that Jesus himself can give. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the need for it. Look at chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But counsel one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now those verses end a paragraph in which the preacher is talking about the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness. Think of the wilderness. Forty years they're in it. There's a place of little rest. It's a place of thirst and hunger. It's a place that's foreboding. It's a place that is barren. It's a place that is difficult. It's a place you don't settle in. You pass through. And what the preacher is saying is, that's life. This life here is a place to pass through. In spiritual terms, life is a wilderness. It's that difficult. It's that barren. It's that foreboding. And you know what the preacher says? Even the best things in this life, a good job, a good marriage, great kids, the respect of communities, life is its peak will never satisfy the deepest need of your heart. You know what else he says? Even when you get those things, even when you have those things, they'll slip through your fingers. You can't hold on to them. Everything changes. Everything withers. Nothing stays the same in this wilderness. And that's the point. The point is, even in the best of times, things pass quickly to the worst of times. And sometimes it seems like God's gone away. I got a call yesterday, a 54-year-old man suddenly dies. I talked to a dear friend I told him that news when I called him back and he said, well, I wanted to tell you about another death. My favorite uncle died at 72. Suddenly. This life is a wilderness. 
I mean, I don't know about you, and you're not in the same business as me, but you're a Christian, so I guess you are. How long can you go before life breaks down your door? How long can you go with a sense of euphoria? A few hours? Maybe a day or two? If you go any longer, you're weird. (laughs) I mean, sometimes it seems in the midst of our discouragement that even God is gone. Maybe it's all a lie. I'll never forget when I was 16 years old, lived in Virginia. It was a late summer day, and I was sitting on my bed in my bedroom. It was a summer day. Nice, about 72 degrees probably. My dad comes into my room and sits down next to me on the bed. What are you doing here? I said, nothing. He said, yeah, I can see that. But why? Why are you doing nothing? I said, I don't know. I guess I'm just depressed. He said, depressed? Depressed about what? I'll never forget. I said to him, Dad, life is boring. I mean, it's the same thing day after day after day. And there's some good times, but it's basically boring. It seems meaningless. And I'll never forget what he did. He touched my leg and said, Doug, let me tell you something. 85% of all life is boring. Get used to it. I'll never forget it. You say that's a little harsh. Maybe it is, but that's what the preacher's saying. He's saying this life in this world is a wilderness. Sure, there are victories. Sure, there's joy. Sure, there's peace. But mostly, it's tough slogging. All of the things that will satisfy you, that you think will satisfy, don't. And you know the reaction to that? We see it in the Old Testament. They begin to grumble and complain, and when that doesn't help, they become cynical and bitter. And according to this preacher, the only thing that will cure it is counseling, daily counseling. Second, notice the nature of this counseling. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold fast our original confidence firm to the end. You know, one of the biggest difficulties in the book of Hebrews, it's that whipsaw you get. I mean, sometimes he seems to be so gentle. He's talking grace. And the other time, maybe sometimes a verse or two away, he talks about severe judgment. I mean, one place he says, let us draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. And the other place he says, don't harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion when their bodies were strewn in the wilderness. (laughs) On the one hand, he says, hey, everything's cool. You've got the grace of the Lord. On the other hand, why you better not complain and be bitter or you might be strewn in the wilderness. You think to yourself, what is it? Good news or bad news? Is it draw near and relax? Or is it you better behave or you're toast? I mean, think of who these people are. They've been run out of Rome because of their evangelism. There was a quadrant or an area in Rome that was settled by the Jews. Everyone there, for the most part, 
bowed their knees to Caesar. But these certain Jews who had become Christians, acknowledging Christ as their Lord, weren't willing to do that to the emperor Claudia. Claudius was not their Lord, Jesus was. They begin to go out and infiltrate the Jewish neighborhoods, speaking of Jesus, and the reaction is vitriolic. They're run out of town. They lose their property. They lose their livelihood. They lose their place of comfort. They're in deep discouragement. And so what does the preacher do? Sometimes he's soft, and sometimes he's stern, just like Jesus. Remember when Jesus' friend dies at Bethany? John tells us that Jesus comes three days late. And the first one to meet him is Martha, the dead friend's sister. And she says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha says to him, I know he will in the last day. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. You see what he's doing with Martha? He's giving her a healthy dose of truth. He's challenging her presuppositions. Let me say that again. He's challenging her presuppositions. He's pulling her heart up out of the depth. He's saying to her, Martha, listen, listen to the truth. But minutes later, her sister Mary comes and says to him exactly the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And you know what Jesus does? He breaks down and weeps. John says he's moved deeply and he says to her, where have they laid him? It's a totally different reaction. To Martha, he speaks truth. To Mary, he sheds tears. To Martha, he says, suck it up! And minutes later, he is allowing himself to be sucked down into the agony of Mary's heart. You see this? In the space of minutes, we see in Jesus the ministry of truth and the ministry of tears. He goes right to their side and he speaks truth and he speaks tears. And you know something? If you know your heart at all, you know you need both. You can't survive without both. Think of it. The ministry of truth without tears is brutal. You don't listen to anybody for very long who's engaged in that. But the ministry of tears without truth is sentimental. And you don't get anything from them. A truth teller without tears you'll never listen to, but someone that only cries with you and doesn't lead you to the truth, that's no good either. What you need is both a fixer and a feeler, a preacher who knows it both. And you know something? There is no one who's ever lived who has both those ministries in perfection. Like Jesus. 
Third, notice the name of the counselor. Look at chapter 4, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see what he's saying here? He's saying that there is no one you need on your journey more than Jesus. Why? Because he's a perfect mix of truth and tears. Look what the preacher says. He has been tempted in every respect just like us. A few weeks ago, I read about a minister that had a problem and he had to go to the hospital. He needed a test and it was to be very painful. They had to put dye in his veins and watch what it did for more than an hour. And so he gets to the hospital and he goes to the procedure room and he lays on a hard table with a little sheet and all of a sudden through the door comes a man from his church. And instantly he's elated. Hey, here's a guy I know. And the guy says, hi, Reverend so-and-so, I'm here to do the procedure for you. Now, it's going to be a little painful, but I'll try to be gentle with you. The minister says after an hour and a half, he said, I feel like I've been through the war. This guy has brutalized me. I'm in such agony, all I can say to him when it's over is, see you later. A few years go by. He's got to have the same test. He goes to the same hospital, same procedure room, lays on that same hard table, through the door walks the same man. He says, oh no. And so he braces himself for another hour of torture. But this time, instead of roughing him up, he's gentle with him. The minister said, I had no pain. And when it's over, I say to the guy, hey, last time I was here, you put me through it, but this time it's been a breeze. What's up? The guy said, well, actually, Reverend, last year I had a kidney stone. It was the hardest thing I've ever had in my life. Excruciating pain. And it changed me. Think of this. There is no other religion in the world that says that the God of the universe got on the table. There's no other God who's experienced the pain and the grief and the loss and the agony and the desertion of friends but Jesus. In fact, he suffered more than all of the world put together. You say, how can you say it? Because he came from heaven all the way to hell for you. What the preacher's saying is, no weakness that you have, he hasn't experienced. No loss, no temptation, no pain, no rejection, no sin has he not endured. And yet, look what else the preacher says. He was tempted in every way except without sin. The only sin Jesus ever had was what was piled on him at the end of his life. He was tempted in every way just like us but without sin. You know why that's important? Because sin hardens us. Sin is what makes it hard for us to put ourselves in the shoes of somebody else. You know why? Because we're always thinking of ourselves. 
I want you to know a little secret. Every once in a while, not all the time, but almost a lot of times, I'll go into a hospital room and I'll hear some terrible diagnosis and I'll have some sense of empathy, but I'll also be thinking, glad it's not me. I get to walk out. Why do I think that? Because of my own sin. Sin is a barrier. Sin focuses my eyes and your eyes on yourself. It's hard to empathize with somebody else when all you're doing is thinking about yourself. Jesus has no such barrier. He has no sin to get in his way. The gospel tells us he weeps, he sighs, his gut is wrenched with no regard for himself. Think of the woman caught in the act of adultery. After all of her accusers have gone away, remember what he says to her? Where are your accusers? They've gone away, Lord. Remember what Jesus says to her? Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Now notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I promise to forgive you if you promise never to do it again. He says, I love you. I forgive you. And I want you to base your life on that. You see, he's a perfect balance of truth and tears. You know, in the history of the world, God's only founded one nation. It's not the United States. And in that one nation, he said there would be two offices. A king and a priest. The job of the king was to enforce the law. The king represented the truth. The priest was to represent the tears. Did you know that in all the history of Israel, there was never one person who was king and priest until Jesus? See what the preacher's saying? He's saying in the wilderness, in this life you need counseling. You need truth and you need tears and you need them together and there's only one person in whom they come together perfectly and that's Jesus. And you know where you get that counseling? Do you know where Jesus draws near to you most often? The preacher tells us in the church, in the lives of other people, And that's why before the preacher gets to the counselor, he gets to the builder. He knows there's only one place where the counselor Jesus most often draws near to anybody, and that's in the company of other people, other believers. Why? Because there's only one place in the history of the world where truth, infinite truth, and infinite tears came together, and that's the cross. And if you've been to the cross long enough, you know that the truth and the tears have equal weighting. I have a friend in ministry who says, you know the trouble with most Christians? They've been at the cross long enough to get saved, but not long enough to know how much they're loved. You know what that means? They've got the truth 
and they may dis- dispense it freely. But they haven't been there long enough to get the tears. You see, in this world, we need counseling. We need Jesus to draw near to us. And most often, He does it through other believers. Isn't He the one that said, where two or three are gathered in My name, I'm there in the midst? That's why the preacher says, encourage one another. Counsel one another. What's He mean? Draw near to Jesus. And when you do, you'll get the truth with the tears. And with tears, there will be truth. There's only one primary place where Jesus does that. And that's in His body, the church. You know why He does it? Because Jesus is in the business of being too kind to sinners like you and me. Think about that. Amen.